So as I mentioned, we are going through the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of four books that deal with the life and teachings of Jesus. And uh, right kind of smack dab in not the exact center of Matthew's gospel, kind of the center of the thought of Matthew's gospel is something called the Sermon on the Mountains. Likely uh, for you, when you think about what Jesus is saying and speaking, uh, what comes to mind, a lot of those things that we think of as Jesus' words, things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. And what's been happening is that uh, Jesus has collected this group of followers who have responded to this message that he's been giving, said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Essentially, in and through me, God's kingdom is in breaking into our world. You guys have all been kind of doing your own thing. It's time to do a 180 and respond and join with me in my kingdom. And several people do, and they are invited to this mountaintop where Jesus then unpacks for them what life in the kingdom actually looks like. And so we've been doing that together over the past several weeks. Uh, but one of the things that we've noted is if, if this Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom, we can probably call it like the constitution of the kingdom, the marching orders of the kingdom. And although it sounds really good on paper, when we start to, to really engage it, what we notice is that it is actually contrary to the message that we usually get around us. Because Jesus says things that that actually are kind of an affront to the way our culture, our world uh, functions. So Jesus will say something like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, that doesn't actually, when we start to unpack and think about it, sound much like a message we get. You know, we are a culture that celebrates lots of self, right? Lots of self, self-actualization, like self-discovery, self-promotion and self-gratification. And yet, this attitude of complete and utter independence, well, that, that's the opposite of what the kingdom of heaven is all about, Jesus says. Jesus says it's, it's those who recognize their complete and utter dependence on God that will inherit the kingdom. And so as we've gone through this, not only have we seen it confront our world around us, but it's actually started to confront our hearts because our hearts are so prone to these attitudes. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount as it addresses specifically religious practice. So Jesus has gone and said, hey, you're doing all these religious things, but, but let's look at the motives behind them. What's going on underneath the surface? Oh, wait, this, these religious things, are, they're actually not about God. They're about you. You're doing them so people will look at you and say, man, Andrew, dude, you're super spiritual. Man, you have a great community group. Man, you killed it in DNA this week. And Jesus says, if your motivation is about getting other people to recognize you, well, that's, that's what you get. That's all you get. But if you truly, truly, truly want to engage with your Father in heaven, and it's got to be about him. And so this week, we are jumping forward, and we're kind of out of that section. And Jesus is now going to apply some of that same uh, teaching, but now to the regular stuff of life. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to be starting in verse 19. And we are going to try and make it all the way through to verse 24. So uh, like I said, buckle in. Uh, so Jesus starts off by saying this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Uh, there's this new show on Netflix. I think it's called Condo. Is that right? Anyone? Is that right? Cleaning up? Tidying up? Something like that? Uh, Whatever, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? A little Asian lady comes in and like breaks your life apart and says, man, you have way too much stuff. I'm going to Japanese this thing and it's going to be awesome. That's it, right? <laughs> okay, so interesting concept, right? She goes around to people's houses and she gets them to pull out all their crap and ask them this one question, does this bring you joy? And you got to go through and you got to look at your shirt and say, shirt, do you bring me joy? And, uh, and if shirt says, no, I'm from 10 years ago and I smell bad and I have holes, then you say, thank you, shirt, for your service. I'm going now to donate you to Goodwill. And so that someone that Gordon Julia work with will have a shirt. Now, uh, it's an interesting concept that we have, uh, but what, what is so phenomenal about this is that she's captured something. She's captured something about our culture, about the way we, we do things. We tend to be hoarders. We tend to hold on to things tightly, and this is the, exactly the attitude that Jesus is talking about here. And so uh, what's very interesting and what, what doesn't quite get captured in the English translation is that when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, if we actually go into the, the Greek grammatically, uh, the, the, the way that he's saying this is, is such a way that it's probably uh, uh, more appropriate for us to understand that Jesus is saying this is happening currently and continuously. And so a, a better way of, of saying this or a better way of grammatically uh, doing this would say stop, not like this is a future act that you're going to be tempted to do, but stop storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is happening right now in your life, or stop, not heaven, earth. Uh, <laughs> this is happening right now, currently in your life. This is something that you are directly dealing with in this moment. And she says, stop storing up treasures on earth. Now, when you think of that word treasure, I mean, I have this like junior high brain, drives my wife crazy sometimes, um, especially when fart jokes happen. But, uh, but when I think of treasure, like, I think of like pirates and or like the Hobbit. I'm like, you know, smog, this dragon has this vast amount of treasure and there's like coins and jewels and cool looking armor. I'm like, that is treasure. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, what Jesus is talking about is things that we value, things that we hold close, things that we invest time, resources, and energy into. There's this saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? What your treasure is doesn't necessarily have to be valuable. It just has to be valuable to you. And Jesus says, don't lay up treasures here on earth. When we think about treasures, they're not necessarily just these material possessions either. Uh, I mean, for some of us, they are, right? For some of us, treasure is getting the, the newest iPhone when it comes out, or Android, if you're you know, part of that group. <laughs> uh, for some of us, it's, you know, it's the big house, it's the, the new car. Uh, but for some of us, it's 
camping in the Rockies in the summer, doing a backpacking trip. For some of you, that's hell. And you're like, no, I, I, I don't get those camping people, like tent, like you know God like, gave us the technology to have pillow top mattresses, right? Like I'm not sleeping on something that is thinner than my finger. Um, and so for you, your treasured vacation is like Bahamas or Cancun or Hawaii. You're like, man, I want Mai Tais, pina coladas. I want a beach on one side, a pool on the other, a little lounge chair, and a good book. And that is my treasure right there. Can I get an amen on some of that? Right? A few of us? Yeah? Uh, maybe for some of you, what you treasure isn't so much experience. It's not so much stuff. It's promotion, prestige, title. And you work really hard because you want to accomplish something. You want to be someone. You want to be known as something. But regardless of what treasure is for you, Jesus actually looks at it and he says, stop storing this stuff up. It's not actually having any lasting value. When we talk about storing, it's this idea of accumulation, this idea of focus. It's me putting my time, my resources, my energy, my thoughts, the thing that, like when something goes wrong with this thing, it drives you crazy. You start lashing out at your friends or your spouse, your kids. It's a thing that we invest ourselves into. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in uh, New York City, and he has this great quote. He says, uh, idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things, essentially good things that we turn into God things. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, there are a lot of good things out there. None of these things that we've talked about so far are in and of themselves bad. But when we store them up, that's the act of investing ourselves into them. That's the act of turning something that could be a good thing into a God thing. And Jesus is kind of funny here because he almost like looks at us and mocks us a little bit. He's like, guys, it's a bad investment. It is a bad investment. What's going to happen? Think about fashion for a second. Uh, okay, so I grew up, I was born in 87, okay, way back. I've lived through, like, I think I'm in my fourth decade, third decade. No, I'm not 40 yet. <laughs> third decade, okay. I lived through the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, and now we're in the post-2010, so I guess that's kind of like a fourth decade. Um, when I was a kid, people had mullets. It was a thing. It was cool. And they really wore like a lot of these like neon colors, okay? Well, when I was a teenager, that's, that was totally different. Uh, I remember this very traumatic experience I had. I used to like love to wear like jogging pants, you know, like those really old school like 80s, 90s jogging pants. And, and this kid came up to me one day and he was like, dude, no one wears those anymore. They're not cool. Jeans are cool. And it devastated me. And I took a long time before I could put on a pair of jogging pants again. Um, but, but when I got into to middle school and to early high school, what was cool was these like really big baggy jeans. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, you have the big chain on the side. Uh, everyone's doing those like 10 year ago pictures and I've seen some of you. Yeah, you had those. And uh, if you were a dude, it was like the button up shirt, but it was like kind of this mesh material and it had like flames and dragons. And you wore like puka shell necklaces with like a shark tooth on it, and you're like, dang, I'm so cool. And you look back now with your, like, like Lance Bass, like, uh, bleach blonde, like, uh, frosted tip hair, and you're like, dude, <laughs> oh, I hope this never comes back. But you know what? 
That's what all those moms said about mom jeans. And guess what? Mom jeans are back. They are. And you know, here's the thing. You know you have gotten old. Uh, <laughs> you know you've gotten old when a fashion comes around again and you're like, I'm a pass. I'm a pass on that one. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not moving with this trend anymore. Like, I'm going to settle here with skinny jeans and plaid. And, like, I'm going to be that, like, 80-year-old guy who's, like, wearing boots and skinny jeans and plaid <laughs> because I've, I'm done. Like, it's gone too far. But here's my point. Fashion is temporal, right? You buy something new. It doesn't last. Your jeans start to fray. Or else maybe they're in perfect condition, but fashion changes and suddenly the things that you thought were so cute, so cool, so amazing, they're just not anymore. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, I, I got into this trend, and I think it's primarily from my dad. My dad loves music, and because of that, like me and all my brothers absolutely love music, and we just got into this trend of collecting CDs, and we collect them and buy them. You know, probably in my lifetime, I've probably spent several thousand dollars on CDs. I, I probably have three, three or four hundred CDs in my house. Um, and I, you know, it's just this thing that I love. Um, and, and as I was doing this, this kind of working through this passage, I, was, I think about my CDs because I think they're a good picture for us. Um, I love CDs and I love that feeling when you like get a new one, you open it up, take it out of the wrapper, put it in your car, you listen to it. But, you know, a couple weeks in, you've heard it a few times. And so you're like, okay, I'm done with it going to go up on the shelf. And if I'm being really honest with myself, I love these CDs, and yet probably 90% of them, Shannon would probably say like 98% of them, uh, you know, are, are ones that I, I probably won't listen to on a regular basis anymore. And yet I've spent this time investing, and, and they mean so much to me. And every year, Shannon, I get into this argument. She's like, get rid of these CDs. You don't listen to them. You have all the music on your phone, uh, and I can't do it. And they have this intrinsic hold on my life. I just can't seem to let them go. thing is, my music tastes have changed in the time I've accumulated the CDs. Some I probably will not really enjoy anymore. They're frail. They're fickle. They do not last. I don't know what your thing is. Maybe it's cars, but here's the thing that $80,000 SUV someday is going to get sold for $500 on used Victoria. That million-dollar house, someday it's going to be someone's fixer-upper. That amazing job that seems so fulfilling now, someday it's going to become normal. It's going to become less interesting. The novelty will have worn off. That sweet spot that only you know about on the island, it's going to get discovered. People are going to come there, and it's just not going to be the same. And Jesus looks at all of these things that we value. He's, he's like a really good financial advisor. He says, hey, these are bad investments. These things that you hold so dear, they're not going to last. But like a good financial advisor, he says, okay, but here's the thing. I, I got a hot tip for you. There is something here that is worth investing in. So he says, he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. What are heavenly treasures? What does that actually mean? Um, I think one of the uh, early followers of Jesus, a man named Paul, wrestled through this question. He planted many of these churches that uh, kind of began around the Mediterranean basin, and he had several followers that he would uh, send to these churches to kind of give leadership. And one of those followers followers was a, a young man named Timothy. So he's writing, uh, Timothy kind of coaching him along as he's figuring out leadership. And in the end of his first letter, Timothy, he's, he's trying to instruct him on how to, how to coach people who deal with, uh, with having wealth. And he says this in, in chapter 6, verse 17 of 1 Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Uh, stop there for a second. What's, what's Paul saying? He's saying, People who have money, that's great. But, but don't let them think that this is something that they have earned or done or that is something of value. Don't let them set their hopes on this. 2008, some of you might have been affected by this. I, I know about it uh, because it did affect some people close in my life. Uh, but this housing market in the States burst and it had this massive effect in the economic markets. And literally millions of people lost billions of dollars Overnight, retirement plans, gone. Houses, repossessed. Things that people had valued for their safety, for their security, just like that. Done. Paul says, if someone has money, tell them, don't don't put your hope in that. Could be here today, gone tomorrow. That's a bad investment. He goes on to say this, rather... Set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And get this, he says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So what is... Paul tells us storing up treasure in heaven looks like doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share. Why is this? Because we talk about this all the time, but this leads to ways that we get to see gospel saturation happen. Uh, uh, Just imagine with me for a second, think about your job. What if your job wasn't just a means of kind of generating income so your family can survive? What if your job was for you not just a place where you got meaning? What if your job was a mission field? What if every day you went to work and said, Jesus, thank you that you are paying me to be in this place where there are people who don't yet know you? And just imagine the beauty if one of those coworkers that you have spent some extra time loving, caring for, you get to heaven and that person is there. And that person says, hey, you showed me Jesus. Does that not seem an investment worth making? What about our houses? What is your house to you? For me, so often my house is a refuge away from people. It's like my sanctuary. It's the escape place. That's why if you come over, and I'm not expecting you, get a little grouchy. 
Well, that's not a good thing. Here's, here's what I want to challenge us with. Ask ourselves, what if our house wasn't just this place of sanctuary safety, but what if our house was some place that we looked at as like a temple, a place where heaven and you meet, a place where people who yet do not know God can come and experience him. They come and experience him at the dinner table as you break bread together and are reminding them that all of this is just a picture of the sustenance that we daily need from Jesus. Or someone who doesn't have a home comes in and stays with you because they get a picture that there's a God who has a house with many rooms and he has gone and prepared a place for us. What about our money? What if money wasn't just something that we spent on our own gratification, investing in things that were about us, but what if we saw it as God's means of tangibly blessing those in needs around us so that they can see the rich generosity of our Heavenly Father? What about our time? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty regimented with my time. I have very strict, like, criteria compartmentalization of how I spend my time. This is like Andrew serving time. This is Andrew rest time. And when things happen in Andrew rest time, that should be Andrew serving time. Andrew gets cabin cranky time. And that's not a good thing. And the question I've had to ask myself, what needs to change here? What needs to change here? What if my time in the evening wasn't just spent watching the latest series of Netflix, What if I started to see my time as a gift from God to show the care and love and investment that he has for us? What if I saw my time as there to be used to pursue people in the same way that I've experienced the God in heaven who I have offended, yet he came out of love and pursued me and started to pursue people in that same way? I wasn't here when West Village started, but one of the first stories that really captured my heart It made me think, man, one day I really hope that I get to be part of a church like West Village uh, was uh, how this core team kind of got together. And maybe some of you are here today, and so uh, you can correct me if these details are slightly wrong because I wasn't there. But um, Matt Parker, who's one of our elders, he had been part of this core team, and we were were good friends, and so he'd been letting me know what happened. And so he told me, hey, we we got this thing going on. There's like, I don't know, 20 people. We're meeting in this living room, and we got to come up with like, tens of thousands of dollars to get this thing off the ground. And like at the time, West Village was like Chris and Kelly and a bunch of 20-somethings who worked at Best Buy. Like, not even kidding. Like, maybe there's a couple other families, but uh, we're not talking people in like the prime of their careers here. This is the time when any wise person financially would say, hey, this is, you want to like, you're going to have kids, you're going to want to invest in your career, you're going to want to invest in your future. You're like, you need to store up, stock up, get ready. And they had these three uh, different times that they were going to be called on to, to raise money. And they just had to within the, you know, they were getting some money outside, but they had to raise a certain amount internally for this thing to get off the ground. And after the first meeting, Matt gave me a call and we were talking and he was like, hey, it was incredible. This group of 20-somethings came up with not only the first amount that they needed, but far exceeded that amount. Let me ask you, What was it that so captured the heart of these people that they were willing to give up maybe even some of their future investment sacrificially so this thing could get off the ground? 
wasn't because they thought, hey, it's going to be really cool to plant a, a church in a movie theater. Because they said, hey, there's people in Victoria who don't yet know Jesus. And they need to. They were so captured by this vision of eternal treasure. They knew that if we make this investment now, there are going to be people who don't yet know Jesus who are going to come to know him. And one day we are going to meet with our Savior and there are going to be these people who wouldn't ordinarily have been there because we were able to give. That is a heavenly investment. That is investing in good treasure. But let's be honest. How many of us ever actually think about things this way? When you're making a decision, when was the last time you actually sat down and said, hey, is this about something that I want? Something that's good for me? Or is this actually something that reflects God and his will, and his kingdom? Think about some of the things we do on a regular basis. How many coffee drinkers do we have in the room? All right. I, I don't drink coffee. Um, that's like the one vice I don't have, so <laughs> many other vices. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I know a little bit about coffee. I know that it costs a couple bucks usually, and a lot of coffee drinkers uh, will buy a coffee a day, uh, something like that. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just drink at home. But, but how many of us actually like filter in like buying coffee through the lens of the gospel? Uh, probably not many of us. How many of you actually think like, hey, Jesus what would be a good investment in something eternal, something lasting? Buying a coffee a day or, like, I don't know, it's something easy, right? I, I, we have Compassion come every once in a while, this organization that works with impoverished kids, but they do it through the local churches in the two-thirds world. And, and so uh, I used to go to these youth conferences, and they say for the price of a coffee a day, you can actually support a, a child, support a church, that is going to not only meet this child's physical needs, but introduce them to Jesus. Would it be worth giving up a coffee a day so that a kid somewhere in Bolivia or Ecuador or some other place get to know Jesus? How many of us ask that question? I'm a Mac guy. Is there any Mac computer people like yeah, okay, yeah. It was like, dude, you, now you're all like scared. You're like, what's he going to say? <laughs> uh, I'm a Mac guy. love Mac computers. I uh, have for a while. Uh, but they're expensive, right? I mean, I can probably do what I do um, on a PC computer just fine. I mean, mostly I use Word and like the internet. So <laughs> play some music. Um, and the question I ask myself, uh, and I don't know if I'm like scared to say this because someone's going to hold me <laughs> to this down the road. But, like, do I actually need to spend, you know, this money on a Mac when I could buy a PC? Like, what happens if we save that money for the Mac and then suddenly we said, hey, I can do what I need to do on a PC. I'm going to make a kingdom investment with a difference. I'm going to take that $2,000 that's left over when I buy a PC that does the things that I do on my Mac, and I'm going to invest it in a local church planner here in Victoria so that another church gets raised up and more people get to know about Jesus. What about our vacations? When was the last time we filtered our vacations through the lens of asking, is this about me and my enjoyment and my fulfillment, or is this about the gospel? Is this a heavenly investment, or is this an 
earthly investment. I, I know today, like a lot of the examples I'm using are, are people with money, right? Spending money. And maybe you're here today and you're like, dude, I got nothing. I got no money. But here's the thing. There are things that you treasure. And maybe for you, it's not money, it's your time. Maybe the question you got to ask yourself is, man, am I willing to give up an hour of Netflix a day so that I can spend some time investing in the God who loves me? Can I give up an hour of Fortnite a week so that that kid in my school who doesn't have any friends gets invited into something where he or she gets to experience the goodness of Jesus? Jesus finishes off this section and he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What's Jesus doing here is he's it's actually inviting us to, to kind of take stock of our hearts. He's inviting us to take stock of our love. And ultimately, he's inviting us to take stock of our worship. You know what you worship by what you invest in. Where do you put your time? Where do you put your energy? Where do you put your money? Most of us don't ever take a, a moment to actually evaluate these things, right? We just, we're impulsive people. We might have good schedules, but we kind of just follow what we're feeling a lot of the time or what makes sense. And, and I want to invite us into a, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to invite you to ask yourself the question, what do I love? What is that thing that you're like, man, this is my investment? This is where I put my time, my finances, my energy. This is the thing that when it doesn't go right, I go a little bit crazy. I want to suggest an exercise uh, that I think might be helpful for this for us. Um, I, I want to invite everyone, just you know, go across the street somewhere, Shoppers Drug Mart, Superstore, any place, and get yourself a little journal, or maybe even just a couple pieces of loose leaf paper. And this week, at the end of each day, I want to invite you to take stock of your day and look at how my time got broken down. Where did I spend my spare time? And then at the same time, uh, take stock of your finances. Where did I spend my money? Do that for a week. And at the end of the week, read through it. You know, it doesn't have to be something long, just a quick point form. You know, what did I spend time on today? How much time did I do this? You know, so maybe I was on my phone for you know, an hour and a half. I watched Netflix for an hour. Uh, you know, I cook dinner, you know, it can be something simple. But, but at the end of that, that week, maybe like next Friday or Saturday, just take a look. See what you've written down. See where your time is and then ask yourself, what is this telling me about my heart? What is this telling me about where my treasure is? Jesus continues to dig a little bit deeper and so in verse 22, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. This is a, a kind of a weird picture. Um, it's not something that in our kind of contemporary 
culture, we actually have a good analogy to represent. And so it's, it's like when I first read this, I was like, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about here. Your eye is the lamp of your body and it like sheds light on you. Um, but uh, this, this, this word that the ESV translation uses for talking about a good eye, they use is healthy. And that actually is, is maybe not the best word. It is definitely a meaning that that word can have. Uh, but if we look at the more common uses in other parts of the Bible, uh, the word is better translated as single, meaning singly focused. And so what I believe Jesus is getting at here is he's asking, what is your focus? Is it a focus on the kingdom of heaven, a good focus, a healthy focus? And the reason that he asks this is because, again, it's the same thing he just said, where you're treasure is there, your heart is also revealed, where your focus is, that's actually going to lead to what you do. Um, I am a snowboarder. Any snowboarders in the room? Yeah, a few of us. Cool. Um, when I started learning to snowboard, I was a teenager, and, um, and so uh, we have to do this thing in snowboarding called carving, and uh, carving is like when you weave back and forth, and you look really cool, and you know, all the skiers are kind of doing their like, but you're just like, yeah, you know, like you look like a surfer dude, but on snow, so it's cool. Um, uh, but uh, when I first learned, all I knew how to do is snowplow, which is super not cool. So you sit on the mountain, and you're just like, I'm lean forward, and you kind of slide down. Um, and so I was really struggling to learn how to carve. And finally, one of my buddies, I think he, he took pity on me, and he came up to me. He's like, okay, here's the thing, man. Uh, the reason you can't carve is because uh, you're not looking at where you need to go. And so you're, you're looking down, you're getting all nervous, and, and when you do that, your whole body shifts in the direction that you look, and so it's throwing you off. So this is what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to put your arm out and look to where you're going and just point there. So, because when you do that, it's going to draw your attention there and it's going to move your body in that direction. And uh, as awkward as it looked for me to kind of like be going around like this, um, it, it totally works. And I actually learned how to carve that way. And what Jesus is saying is we got to keep focused on where we're going because if we start looking around these other places, our body's going to shift in that direction. Our actions will start going in those directions. And so the question I would ask for us is what are you focused on? What is the thing that is drawing your attention? Jesus contrasts the healthy eye focused on him with what the ESV calls the bad eye. And that word bad, again, is a nuanced word, um, and it's used in, in several parts of the Bible. Uh, maybe a, another way to translate would be an evil eye. The concept of the evil eye is not something new to this passage. Um, we actually see it as early as the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, so in Deuteronomy, this, uh, this practice is being uh, implemented by God to the people of Israel, right? They're supposed to be this salt and light people, this people who demonstrates what God's kingdom is like. So he has all these practices for them. And one of these practices is they're supposed to have this cool seven-year period where, um, you know, people, you know, they're going to go through life, they're going to have struggles, they're going to get into debt, and they're going to need to borrow money. But at the end of the seven-year period, all those debts are supposed to be forgiven, and so God is speaking to the people of Israel and he warns them, he says, don't have an evil eye when someone comes to you and it's like getting close to the end of that seventh year and they need money. Like when someone says, hey, 
man, I know there's only seven months until all debts are forgiven, but I'm in super big need. Don't have an evil eye. Don't withhold from that person. The book of Proverbs takes this theme even further. We're warned in Proverbs not to eat bread with a person who has an evil eye. Why? Because the whole time they're just going to be sitting there looking at you being like, you done yet? You done yet? You're eating all my bread. You ever been with someone like that? They're just kind of like hawking over you like they're giving you something, but you know their heart's not in it. You know they're just like hoping that you don't want it or you don't eat it all. And, and Proverbs goes on further and says that someone with an evil eye is a person who chases after wealth. This person with an evil eye is someone God has blessed with the means to make a kingdom impact. And yet they look at their means and say, I don't want to use it for that. I want to use it for me. I would love to tell you that as I've read through this passage this week, that I've just been so encouraged and been like, God is doing such great work in my life and I have experienced such blessing in being an open-handed person. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, this has probably been one of the toughest passages for me because it has hit so uh, many of the areas in my heart that God is still working in. I can put a, a pretty good face on um, in a lot of areas in my life. Uh, you know, I... I've created some good margin in our spending so that we can, you know, give to, to needs and, and give to our church. And, uh, and, you know, we've tried to put good margin in our lives to have people over. Uh, but there's these little subtle undercurrents that reveal that my eye is not, not single. It's not singly focused. It's little things. It's like being blessed by having a ton of air miles and yet wanting to, like, keep those so that Shannon and I can do a trip sometime rather than help someone that we know in need with some travel. It's like having people come over and saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't put wine out tonight. Let's just save that for us. Or, hey, I don't think you need to make that second loaf of garlic bread. We probably enough with just the, the one. I'm so afraid that we're going to waste food, that we're going to be poor with our money, that rather than risk having an abundance of things so I can be generous and gracious, I would rather have less. It's time. I, I use this example a lot because, honestly, God's convicting me a lot, and it's a huge area that I need to grow in, but it's that people coming over and saying, hey, I just want to be in your life, in your house, and I'm saying, I don't really want you here, so I'm going to vacuum so you'll leave. <laughs> It's, it sounds funny, but it's not. It's not. It comes from a heart that has treasures here on earth. And in these moments of my own brokenness, I am focused on all the wrong things. My perspective is not on eternity. My perspective is so limited. You may not have the same things that I do, but I guarantee that you have something. What does your budget look like? Is it dialed in or is there room, is there margin for generosity as needs arise? What does your schedule look like? 
Is it so full of stuff for you and your family that you have no room for anyone else? How do you use your house? Is it a place where people come and experience what it means to be part of the family of God? Or is it something different? When you're at your workplace, is your eye singly focused on eternity? Do you see that as a prime place to store up treasures in heaven? Or is it just about getting in, getting out, getting a paycheck so you can go home and play? And Jesus finishes off this section by saying, if then the light in you is darkness, what does he mean there? I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, we quote him pretty much every week almost, uh, but he's really helpful here. He says this, the man who thinks he is godly because he talks to God and says he believes in God and goes to a place of worship occasionally, but is really living for certain earthly things, how great is that man's darkness? What Martin Lloyd-Jones is drawing out for us is this understanding that when Jesus says, if the light inside you is darkness, what he's, he's really saying is, if what you think inside of you is light and it's not, you have deceived yourself. You could participate in CG and DNA and come to a Sunday gathering. You could give faithfully to the offering. But are these places in you where there's something else trying on your heart? And if, if you're here today and you're like, I don't think so. I really want to challenge you to ask yourself that. Because you might be deceived. And Jesus actually like laments. He says, if this is our state, if, if we think we've killed it, if we think we've nailed it, and we haven't, how great the darkness. There are a lot of things in our minds that are good things. Things like sports, right? Lots of, uh, lots of you have kids. Sports are great for kids. They teach them all kinds of really good things. And it's a great opportunity for mission. Absolutely. And we can even have that in the back of our mind. Yeah, like my kids are involved in all these sports. and It's a great mission field. Let me ask you, is, is that truly what's going on there? And maybe it is, and that's awesome. That's worth celebrating. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's just about fulfilling their needs or your needs. Let me say this. If you are so busy that you have no margin in your life to invest in people outside of activities... It's not going to be a good mission. Just not. If you have no margin in your life for people to be coming and being part of it, there's no way. There's no way. It's an earthly investment. Vacations. Vacations are another great thing. I kind of pick on them a lot today, mostly because I love them. So I'm kind of speaking to myself here. But 
Vacations can be a really important part of our family life, right? It's a chance for us to ref, like pull back together, invest in each other, uh, even a chance for us to be intentional in like discipling our kids better, um, just teaching the rhythm of rest. But let's be honest, sometimes it can just be an indulgence, you know, because we can make choices about how we vacation. We can go on vacation with another family and rest with them and get to help them see, experience what life is like in the kingdom as we kind of disciple them. We can go somewhere cheaper so we have margin in our life and our finances so we can be a blessing to other people. Vacation might be a really good thing. It might actually be something that you're doing because you're being obedient to God. But maybe you're also deceiving yourself. Even rest even rest. And we know that rest is so important. The Bible actually commands us to Sabbath, to take time out of the busyness of life, to be reminded that we are not the ones who are accomplishing anything, that it's actually God who does the heavy lifting. That's a really important rhythm. And rest is something that can so easily be about us and our own indulgence. It can be a, a really good thing can be a time of pulling back and saying, hey, I'm just going to refresh myself in Jesus. Or it can be a time of slothful self-indulgence. You can be involved in all the good things that West Village has to offer. You'll be involved in all the good things that the Christian community in Victoria has to offer. But in the end, I think the question you need to ask yourself is, are there things that I am investing in that I'm not willing to give up? And that's exactly the attitude that Jesus challenges in his last part here in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that word there, money, um, is actually uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bible is, is mammon. It's a Hebrew word meaning possessions or wealth. Essentially, it's the same thing that we talked about in in. Uh, verse 19, it's the treasure, the things that we put our treasure in. You know, it's funny here, Jesus says, you can't serve both, uh, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve both God and money. But that, they kind of like, I don't know about you, that, that doesn't seem logical to me, because there's lots of places in our life where we serve two, uh, two people, like even in a parent, you know, parent-child relationship. You have your mom and your dad oftentimes. That's two masters. They're both telling you things to do. Uh, but Jesus is actually referring to a very specific cultural example. He's talking about the master-slave relationship, which was very common in his day and age. And he's saying, this isn't necessarily from the perspective of the servant. This is the perspective of the master. When the master looks at you being divided, he knows he's not getting the best from you. He knows that there's someone else who's calling the shots that he doesn't have your full attention. And here's the reality. We do this all the time in our life. We try and this balancing act. We try to be good, faithful followers of Jesus, right? We show up on Sundays. We participate in community groups. I used these examples before. DNAs. We tithe regularly. 
but we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to do all this stuff without sacrifice. We want to still have that sweet middle class lifestyle. Or we want to have those few hours a night where we get to watch that show that we just want to watch and spend the time the way that we want to spend it. And Jesus says, there's a problem. When you have two masters, eventually one is going to ask you to do something that you do not want to do. That's actually going to be contrary to what the other master tells you. Which master do you choose in that moment? See, the moment will happen when what we want, what we desire, actually goes against what God wants and what God desires. He may call us to give up something that we really want. He may call us to do something that we really do not want to do. Or he may call us to stop something that we don't want to stop. I was reading this book uh, a few months ago. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And in it, this pastor tells a story. He, uh, he moved into this neighborhood and he just felt so compelled that he needed to have a kingdom impact, that he needed to store up heavenly treasure in his neighborhood. And so him and his wife said, we're going to be super, super intentional and just invest in this neighborhood. And they had a couple of kids and their daughter in particular was part of this like scout troop organization uh, in the town that they had moved from. And it was significant for her. She had good connections, lots of really positive things in her life. And they said, hey, there is a scout troop that's, uh, it's about a 45 minute drive away in a different town. So they had a decision to make because they knew that God had called them to invest in their neighborhood. But if they let their kid do this thing, which good, you know, beneficial, but would keep them out of their neighborhood most nights of the week. 45-minute drive there, two hours trip, not worth coming back. 45-minute drive back, bam, evening's gone. And so they said no. It was a good thing, but they weren't willing to let it become an ultimate thing. And that's a pretty contrary picture to, to what I see in most families. Most families say, hey, I, I want all these great opportunities for my kids, and that's what's going to become a priority. Um, you know, I'm going to work with them, invest in them for their schooling. I'm going to drive them around to all their sports. What if God's saying, I actually want you to say no? Because I have something different for you and for your family in this season. And when in these moments come up, we have a choice of which master we are going to follow. Are we going to chase after mammon? Are we going to look to earthly treasures? Are we going to be looking around with the evil eye? I think if most of us are being honest, our state might be a little dark. Jesus tells us if you want to be part of my kingdom, you got to be singly focused. You got to store up those treasures in heaven. And yet, I'm looking at my heart and I'm saying, 
There is an evil eye. And there is darkness. And Jesus says, if the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. If this is the end of our story, then we should bend over and weep. Because this is a place of despair. I don't know about you, but I have worked really hard in my life to try and overcome the darkness. And it hasn't gone so well. But it's not the end of the story. John in his gospel tells us of Jesus. He says, in him is the life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Is that not good news? No, I need to hear it. Is that not good news? When you look at your life, when you take stock of the wayward way of your heart, and you think, if this, this is up to me, then I have blown it, and then you get to hear that there is a God who is not content to leave us in this state, that though we were filled with darkness, he came in, and our darkness is not able to overcome him. That is good news. See, we often get pulled into looking for earthly treasures. Marie Kondo, you know, the, the mistake that she makes is she asks, what things give you joy? Right? Here's the thing. Nothing can give you joy forever. That thing that gives you joy now, six months, boom. Done. But Jesus, Jesus was a treasure of heaven that came down to earth. He is the pearl of great price worth giving up everything for to pursue. And when we find him, the joy that we get, it doesn't go away. Jesus is the focus that we need to have. And he's our example because he was the only one who ever walked the earth whose focus was completely centered on the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is our good master. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. If I start to try and deal with my inner darkness, if I start to try and divulge myself of earthly treasures on my own, it's not going to work. There's going to be something that captures me and pulls me in. On Jesus, something changes. His spirit comes into me, transforms me. And this is why we regularly need to gather together because our eyes are so prone to wander. This is why we encourage everyone, be part of a community group. And in your community group, be part of a DNA. Come regularly to Sunday gathering, not because we need people to show up, but because each of us needs to know every single week that there is a person who we need to focus on. We need that reminder often, frequently. We're going to close here. I know I'm like 20 minutes over, so apologize, band. Um, <laughs> um, 
we're going to respond in three different ways. The first way is singing. Uh, songs aren't just things that we uh, do, you know, kind of practice our karaoke chops. Um, these are actually ways that we teach our heart and train our heart to focus on Jesus. We're also going to respond through giving. And this is a discipline, a, a way that, that every week we remind ourselves that this is not our salvation, this is not our security, this is not our satisfaction. And so we can give it freely and joyfully and sacrificially and willingly because we have found our true satisfaction. And the final way that we get to respond is through communion. And we are reminded of the kind of, kind of good master that we have, one who would literally give up his very life for us. So I invite you as we continue on to stand. We're going to sing together. I'm just going to pray for us. Father, thank you that you were not content to leave us in a place where we're pursuing treasures that have no value, but that you came to show us what our real treasure is. Our hearts are prone to wander that you continually remind us together each and every day through community, through your spirit, through your word, that we have access to name for us. Amen.